Hello, everyone. This is Pastor Jay Tyler from Holt Assembly of God, and I want to thank you for listening to this broadcast of Life in the Spirit. I pray that you are challenged, blessed, and encouraged as you hear God's Word shared in this message. Today's message is part two of our series, Breaking Oppression. And in this series, we want to talk about areas of our lives that can be oppressed. Areas of our lives that can be oppressed and keep us from experiencing the fullness of God's plan and purpose for our lives. So oppression can be described this way. It's being held down, being ruled over with a rod of iron, being trampled upon, being forced to one's knees, weighed down, preyed upon, crushed, or afflicted. So in last week's message, we looked at the oppression the Israelites suffered uh, at the hands of the Egyptians in the book of Exodus. And the slavery the Israelites suffered served as an example of humanity's enslavement to sin. So when we read that story, we can see a type. We can see a foreshadowing of our lives in, under the bondage of sin. Prior to coming to Christ, all of us were under the dominion of sin. Each and every one of us. No, not one of us were born free. We were all born under the dominion of sin. And just as Pharaoh had dominion over the Israelites, sin had dominion over us prior to new birth. So Israel could not fulfill God's plan while they were enslaved in Egypt. So what does God have to do? God sends them Moses. And Moses delivers them out of their bondage, and he leads Israel towards the promised land. Again, he is a type and a shadow of Christ. He is a messianic figure. He is a deliverer. So likewise, we cannot fulfill God's plan or purpose for our lives under the dominion of sin. And this is why Jesus came into our lives, to save us from both the penalty and the power of sin. Look what Jesus says in Luke 4, 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So again, Jesus came to liberate us from the power and the penalty of sin. Now, after the Israelites are freed from slavery, they make their way towards the promised land. I believe God's full intention for their lives is to enter into the promised land. So this experience that they have that parallels us as well. So if we are born again, we come out of sin, we come out from the dominion of sin, we begin to walk, follow God, going towards the promised land. So the Israelites' experience gives us an example. It's a parallel. So as the Israelites travel through the desert and they make their way towards the promised land, they encounter hardships. Likewise, we will encounter hardships. Life will just happen. But what those hardships do is they expose something, and they expose a spiritual reality. While Israel was no longer enslaved by the Egyptians, they were still enslaved in their hearts and minds. Their hearts, their minds, and their attitudes were still in Egypt. They were still thinking and behaving like slaves. So many Christians, we experience forgiveness of our sins, and thank God for that. But that's not the end of salvation. That's not the end of that promise. Jesus promises to forgive us of the penalty of our sin, but he also promises to free us from the power of sin. God's intention for us is not to be oppressed. The promise of God's word is that we come through the penalty of sin, we're delivered from the penalty of sin, but we experience the freedom, the freedom of God's grace and mercy in our lives. The desires and habits developed by our sin nature, and all of us know this too well, the habits, the thoughts, the attitudes, whatever it is, whatever we developed 
when we were under the bondage and the dominion of sin continues to hinder us to this day. And it will keep us from fully experiencing God's plan for our lives. Romans 6.14, for sin shall not have dominion over you. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Jesus said it this way, John 8, 36. Therefore, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. So here's the hypothetical question I want you to answer or consider this morning. If Jesus can save us from the penalty of our sins, and he can deliver us from the power of our sin, then why are we still being oppressed? Why am I still experiencing oppression in my life? First, are we born again? If we aren't born again, we will remain under the dominion of sin. And we will continue to suffer oppression until we give our lives to Jesus. If the answer is this, yes, I am born again, but I'm not experiencing true freedom, then we need to identify those areas and figure out why we aren't free indeed. So if you are experiencing oppression, it's not God's plan for your life. Every one of you need to hear that. If you are experiencing oppression in any area of your life, that is not God's plan for your life. If we experience oppression, it will hinder us from fulfilling God's plan for our lives. Likewise, if we experience oppression collectively as a church, it will hinder us as a church from fulfilling God's plan and purpose for us in this community. So oppression is a tool the adversary uses against us to hinder us from fulfilling God's plan. In order to oppress us, Satan will do this, because he has no power, church. He really has no power in this area. But he will continue to lie, because that's who he is. He's a liar. So he will lie to our flesh. He will appeal to our emotional wounds, our past, whatever we're going through, whatever difficulty. He'll whisper in our ears. He will whisper words of hopelessness and despair. May I remind you of this? Our adversary is defeated. While we have a real spiritual enemy, he is defeated. Colossians 2.15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle, triumphant over them. Now that word triumph is interesting because it reflects the Roman triumphs when they would celebrate their victories and they would come through Rome and they would cart through Rome the spoils of the, the lands of the people they conquered. They were triumphing. Jesus triumphed over Satan through the cross. Not only through the cross, but also through the resurrection of the dead. It proves that he is victorious. So our adversary will lie to us. He'll spin a narrative that is so convincing. And it's so convincing that we'll believe it. And we'll, he'll lure us into his plans. And he can be successful if we allow it. He has no power to drag us into his plans. So if you are born again, the adversary is powerless. He's been defeated. But some of us believe lies. We believe lies, and that's one of the reasons why we don't walk in true freedom. So Jesus has set us free, but we have to learn to walk in that freedom. But today I want to speak to you about breaking the power of oppressing pride. Breaking the power of oppressing pride. Pride is the root of all sin, period. It is the root of all sin, it is the driving force or the motivating factor behind our sin nature. Neither God nor man created sin. Genesis 1.31, then God saw everything that he made, and he, indeed it was very good. Again, if God says something is very good, it can't get any better. 
It can't get any better. God created man as his final act of creation. God surveys everything he created, the heavens, the earth, everything in them, and he declares, you know what? It's very good. I did a pretty good job. And again, if this is God's declaration, we know that at this point there is no sin in this world. There is no sin in existence. So where does sin come from? Well, Satan rebels sometime after this. When? We don't know. But we know that he sins sometime after God's resting from his creation. More importantly, the Bible reveals the motivation of Satan. And this is what we really should pay attention to. It's not when he fell and when he introduces sin to the, into the human race. It's why. Why did he fall? Why did he rebel? What are the origins of sin? Isaiah 14, it gives us some great insight. Verse 12, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. You are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. Please hear these words. We're talking about the devil here. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. But here's his punishment. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Pride was the motivating desire of Satan's rebellion. There's no doubt about it. Pride is the motivating desire of Satan's re rebellion. Look at his words again. I will. I will ascend. I will exalt. I will sit on the throne. I will ascend above. And most, most importantly is this. I will be like the Most High. If that isn't pride, I don't know what is. Satan is the progenitor of sin. It all traces back to him. This is his original aspiration. I will be like God. I will be like the Most High. Sin, therefore, is the exaltation of our personal desires over the commands of God. That's why we call sin lawlessness. Because what does it do? It takes our desires and it trumps God's desires. So please remember this phrase that Satan spoke in Isaiah 14, 14, because you're going to see it again. Just slightly different, but you'll see it again. I will be like the Most High. I will be like the Most High. So because of his rebellion, we know Satan is removed from his heavenly position. And where does he go? Of course, we know that he goes to the Garden of Eden. He goes to the Garden of Eden. What does he do? He tries to tempt. He tries to convince Eve to believe a lie, to depart from God's truth, God's love, and to follow him, to, to listen to his words, his enticing words. What does he do? He speaks a lie. What is that lie? The, the, the thrust of it is here in Genesis 3, 5. For God knows that in that day you will eat of it, I'm speaking of the fruit, and your eyes will be open. And here it is, look. There it is right there. And you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Satan deceives Eve. What does he do? He, he entices her personal desires. You will be like God. Well, I want to be like God. He's holding out for me. I want to be like the Most High. See, pride is the exaltation of self, and it's the motivating desire of all sin. The original sin committed, committed by human parents has been passed down to all of us, and each and every one of us have this root of sin in our lives. And that root of sin that motivates all of our sinfulness is pride. So we've all sinned. We all have a sin nature. Pride is present. Pride is present within us all. 
And if we aren't aware of our own pride, and if we aren't committed to dethroning pride in our own lives, it will come back in a powerful way. It will raise its head in all its ugliness in many different fashions, and it will prevent us from living the life that God's planned for us. Pride left unchecked will open the door and welcome oppression. If you leave your pride unchecked, it will open the door and it will welcome oppression into your life. Our spiritual adversary will take advantage of our prideful disobedience, and he will oppress. The devil is referred to in Scripture in a number of ways by names and titles. And there are, I mean, just a, a bunch of them. I'm going to just take a few. He is called the accuser of the brethren in Revelation 12.10. He's called the adversary, or our adversary, in 1 Peter 5.8. He's called Beelzebub in Matthew 12.24. He's called the dragon in Revelation 22. He's called the father of lives in John 8:44. He's called the prince of this world in John 14:30. He's the prince of the power of air in Ephesians 2:2. He's the serpent in Genesis 3:4. He's the spirit that works in the children of disobedience in Ephesians 2:2. He's the tempter in Matthew 4:3. He's the god of this world 2 Corinthians 4:4. 4, 4. He is the wicked one in Matthew 13, 19. And in Job chapter 41, he's called Leviathan. Job 41, 14. Who can open the doors of his face with his terrible teeth all around? His rows of scales are his pride. His rows of, his, his rows of scales are his pride. Shut up tightly as with a seal. One is so near another that no air can come between them. They are joined together, joined one to another. They stick together and cannot be parted. So notice the exterior of Leviathan. It scales. And his scales fit so tight together that air can't even pass between them. It's impenetrable. This exterior that he has, this armor that he presents, this armor that Satan has, it's in the picture of Leviathan. His scales are impenetrable. It, it protects anything from getting through to him. His rows of scale are his pride. Church, I've said this before. I'll say it again. Pride is grace-resistant. Pride is grace-resistant. Pride is like the scales of Leviathan. It keeps the grace of God from penetrating our hearts and our lives. What, what, how can we look beyond this, this picture that we're seeing? What, what is the truth behind that? What does the Word say? Well, we'll look at James 4, 6. But he gives more grace... Therefore, he says, God, what? Resist the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride is grace-resistant. It's like armor. It refuses humility. Humility comes from the heart, and it opens the door for grace. Humility always welcomes grace into our lives. Pride, therefore, comes from our sinful nature, and what does it do? It doesn't open the door for grace. It opens the door for oppression. The last verse used to describe Leviathan is in verse 34. It says this, He beholds every high thing. He is king over all the children of pride. So before coming to Christ, we're all the children of pride, and Satan ruled over us. Jesus came to liberate us from the king of pride. Aren't you grateful for that? Pride is the root of all sin. It's the essence of our sin nature. Pride is, is what opposes God. It's always what conflicts with God. Pride is self-seeking. Pride is self-focused. Pride is self-driven. When God says one thing, but we choose to do our own thing, that is pride motivating that decision. 
That is pride motivating that action. So why do we go against what God says? Why on earth would we, knowing what we know, go against what God says? Because we're full of pride. Whether you like it or not, you still have pride to deal with. It's part of your, your sinful nature. So we go against God, what he says, because of this. We know better. We know better than God. You say, well, I wouldn't say that. Well, sure, our actions prove that. Because do we think God is out to destroy us? Do we think God is out to harm us? Do we think God is out to shortchange us? No, God is out to love us and protect us. And he gives us his word to abide by so that we can choose blessing, choose life. It really just comes out, we know better than God does. It's pride. It fuels all of our sinful behavior. We think we know better. We have a heightened sense of self. We want to do what we want to do. Well, can't you hear the words of Satan echoing through those motivations? I will, I will, I want, me, me. Church, I've got some good news for you, though. Some great news. If you are born again, you aren't under the dominion of sin. You are no longer enslaved by the desires of your sin nature. You, have, you still have to deal with them, but you are not in bondage to them. So you may not be living that life currently. You may, your life may not reflect on that reality, but it is true, and you can. So Jesus set us free from the dominion of sin so that we can live in that freedom that he provides. Now, that's a truth that we can't erase. It's either truth, it's either gospel, or it's not. But pride, if allowed, will put us in a place where sin has dominion over us again. But that isn't God's plan. That isn't God's plan for us in Christ. So pride is something that inherently belongs to all human beings. Look around, every one of you. Every one of us. Look at me. I don't care. We all have pride. We all have pride that we deal with. And I don't mean good pride. I mean bad pride. Because there's a good pride, right? There's a good pride that, man, you just are, are proud of what you've done. It's something that was good. There's nothing wrong with that pride. There's nothing about t- taking stock in something, being positive about it. But that's not the pride we're talking about. We're talking about the pride that we see from the very beginning of sin that lifts up and exalts self. And it's in us all. It's in us all. Pride is something that inherently belongs to all human beings, and if we aren't humble, Satan will use our pride against us as an opportunity to oppress. It will open the door into our lives and welcome oppression. Give you an example. Let's say two Christian people are in friendship, but they have a falling out. Rather than handling the disagreement biblically, they choose to handle it selfishly. Now, there is no other alternative when you really think about this, because there's our way and there's God's way. So rather than going to each other, seeking reconciliation, hours, days, weeks, months, maybe years go by without any resolution, what happens to that relationship? It sours. That relation sours because of pride. Those two Christians who choose not to reconcile with themselves is evidence of pride. Someone in that situation, maybe both refuse to make things right because they feel the other person is wrong. There is no reconciliation there. There is no humility. There's only pride that is in that situation. And that's pride. Someone in that situation will refuse to make things right because the other person is wrong and I am right. Pride keeps that relationship broken. And if there, if there is no humility, it will remain that way. And it's a great place for oppression. God would love to give grace to that situation, love to give grace, have restoration, have reconciliation. But pride fuels our sinful desires. 
So in a situation like a broken relationship, our flesh says this, I'm right, they're wrong. And until they admit it, they're wrong, nothing will be right, and that is pride. Thinking, that thinking completely defies the Word of God. And my fellow Christians, that is a perfect place for us to welcome oppression into our lives. So if we justify our actions, we choose to handle a situation our way rather than God's way, we are in essence operating in pride. I know better than God. God says this, yeah, I know, but this is the way we're going to handle it. That is pride. That is the essence of pride. That is the exaltation of self-desire. Unless there's some humility, there will be no resolution because pride is grace-resistant. Over the last eight years, I've been pastor of this church, and I've seen this repeated experience. Preach the word, and sometimes I'll watch this. I'll physically see some people just struggle. They begin to squirm in their seats. Some of us just can't. We're more physical. We're more emotional. It's hard for us to contain ourselves, and that's all right. God is speaking to that person. God is challenging that person. There could be freedom here. There could be victory in this person's life. Because I see the Holy Spirit just all over speaking to him. I mean, my words are just falling short. But whatever is connecting, the Holy Spirit is just using that. But what do we do? We resist the Holy Spirit. We refuse to deal with the moment the Holy Spirit's providing to us. Rather than humbling ourselves and finding greater freedom in that moment, what do we do? We harden ourselves to the Holy Spirit. I close the message, give the altar call, perfect opportunity to humble ourselves and to receive, to respond to the grace of God. But what do we do? Man, we stick like glue to that pew because of pride. There have been times where I just want to come out of the pulpit, just tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, how long are we going to resist the Holy Spirit? He, he's trying to bring life into you. He's trying to bring healing into your life. How long will you resist the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit can be pleading with you. You resist, and you, your pride keeps you from humbling yourself. Why resist? Why resist? Then pride makes up these excuses. Here are the two best ones we have. What is someone else going to think about me? What, are, what, what story are they going to, if I go to the altar, if I respond to a message, what are they thinking? Who cares? That's pride, by the way. It is pride. Here's another excuse, and it never works. When I leave church, I'll get home, and I'll take care of it then. Because God doesn't work on your convenience or your time frame. See, he's given you a moment to respond and to humble yourself. In that moment, he's offering you grace. It's not under your conditions. It's not under your control. You are no longer in the driver's seat. He's either God or he's not. The Holy Spirit doesn't want a delayed response. He wants an obedient response. He wants a humble response. There's a story in the Bible, in the book of Acts, concerning an interaction between the Apostle Paul and Felix, and Felix, the governor of Caesarea. Paul's preaching the gospel, and he's arrested in Jerusalem, and, man, they want to just murder him, kill him. they got to get him out of town. And so they, they ship him off to Caesarea, and he stands trial before Felix, and Felix hears his case. Paul makes his case before Felix. Felix listens, sends him back into custody. After considering Paul's case, Felix sends for Paul. Felix is a Roman official, but he's married to a Jewish woman. And he has her with him this time. He, she, he, they want to hear what this man has to say. This, this man who was a Pharisee, who is now a follower of Christ. We want to hear what he's saying about this Christ. So he shares with Felix and his wife, and they listen to Paul's story, listen to, 
Paul shared the gospel. And under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, Felix says these words. Check it out. Acts 24, verse 25. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. That's what some of us do. We have an opportunity of grace. Grace to receive grace, to humble ourselves, experience grace. But what do we do? You know, Holy Spirit, I'll deal with this when I get home. It doesn't work that way. Felix, under conviction, doesn't respond. Rather, what does he do? He hardens himself. He doesn't humble himself. He responds with pride. I'll deal with this at a more convenient time. The Holy Spirit doesn't work on our time schedules, nor does he work at about with our convenience. When we resist the Holy Spirit, we are exalting ourselves over God. We are hardening our hearts, and we are becoming grace-resistant. We have these scales of pride that are coming over us. And church, that is a dangerous, dangerous place to be as a believer. That's not God's plan for your life. The, those scales of pride, what they do is they begin to destroy you. Little by little. If we want to destroy oppressing pride, here's the antidote. Here's the answer. Are you ready? It's real complicated. Humility. See, when we choose to humble ourselves, to submit to God's word, despite our prideful inclinations, we welcome grace into our situation. When we humble ourselves, it gives the Holy Spirit an opportunity to do what? To heal us, to restore us, and to transform us. We are most like Jesus when we're humble. We are most like our adversary when we're prideful. Pride is the root of all sin. But humility, church, is the root of all virtue. It's the root of all virtue. If we really want to become more like Jesus or be the person who Jesus saved us to be, it requires humility. If we are humble, we welcome grace. We welcome transformation. We welcome healing. We, we welcome the presence of God into our lives. When we experience that transforming power of the Holy Spirit, we become more like Jesus, less like our flesh, less prideful, less resistant to pride, more pliable in the hands of God that he can shape us, he can mold us. And humility, church, is the key to all spiritual growth. But the Holy Spirit can transform a humble heart, but a prideful heart is resistant to transformation. Pride keeps us bound while humility welcomes freedom. If you want to think about Jesus, who he is, just think about what the life that he lives. Think about his example. Think about these words in Colossians. Paul writes about him, about Christ. Colossians 1:15. He is, speaking of Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Now this almighty God puts on flesh and dwells among us. That in itself is an act of humility. The creator puts on the flesh of the creation and lives among us. What an act of humility. This is who Jesus is when he comes in the flesh. What does he do? When he, when he begins to live out his plan, his purpose here on this, this earth, what does he do? He calls disciples to follow him, people like you and I. But he calls them to follow him. And what kind of life does he then model for them? What does the life of Jesus look like to these, these followers? 
Matthew 20, 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Pride keeps us from some great things, church. If we can just learn this lesson right here. The creator comes to serve who? The creation. You know, if this were Satan, he would be lording. He would be, he would be lording over us. Right? He would be forcing. He would, but not, not Jesus. Completely different. He has all the power to do so. But what does he do? He comes and he serves the creation to give his life as a ransom, to pay for something that he doesn't have to pay for. To ransom, to pay, to give his life for ours. The creator given his life for the creation's sin. Think about the evening Jesus was betrayed. You really want a good picture of humility? Here it is. The evening that Jesus was betrayed, the night of the Last Supper. So we understand the whole order, the sequence. We get to that place of the Last Supper, and, you know, who's the betrayer? But what happens before that? What happens before they sit down? They come in off the streets, they got some dirty feet, don't they? And what does Jesus do? He stands up, and he begins to wash their feet. God in the flesh, he is demonstrating such a wonderful picture of humility, if you'll capture this. He's washing the feet. He's taking the role of a certain servant, and he instructs his disciples then to treat each other this way. This is how we ought to treat each other. Well, I can hear pride already whispering to some of you. I can already hear it. It's under the surface. You don't know what they did to me. You don't know how they treated me. I don't, but Jesus does. And it doesn't change God's word. Humble yourself like Jesus did. Now, before you, you make your plea to Christ, you don't know what they did to me, or you don't know what was done to me, please hear me. Judas is at the Last Supper, remember. Judas has his feet washed by Jesus. Now, if that isn't a powerful picture, I don't know what is. Jesus knows he's the betrayer. He knows he's the rat. He knows what he's going to do. This is the man that's going to betray you. This man, you put your heart into him, and he's going to betray you. So as a Christian, we aren't held accountable to the standard of our flesh. We are held accountable to Jesus under the standard of grace. Our excuse may be this, I'm not Jesus. I, I can't humble myself like that. I can't wash another person's feet who betrays me. With all due respect, yes, you do. Yes, you can. You're born again. You are a new creation. The Spirit of God lives in you. If you, if you fall back on that excuse, that is just pride speaking. That is our justifying our feelings and our thoughts rather than humbling ourselves. If you are born again, you have been set free from those desires. You don't have to obey those desires. If you're born again, you are a new creation in Christ. You can humble yourself. If you are born again, the Spirit of God dwells in you. He will empower you to be humble. But you have to choose the biblical route rather than the fleshly prideful route. It's not that we can't humble ourselves, church. It's that we won't humble ourselves. And pride is grace-resistant. Paul writes these words to the church of Philippi. Christians, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, all of us, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. This is our example. Taking the form of a bondservant. Let this mind be in you. And coming in the likeness of men. 
And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Paul's encouraging believers in this local church who apparently have some issues with each other because he wouldn't be addressing this. Issues with pride in their hearts, issues with pride in their relationships. Paul admonishes this church to adopt this attitude, take these actions. The Holy Spirit will empower you to do this. By following his example of humility, if we choose humility, we will experience freeing grace. Freeing grace, not oppression, freedom. See, church, we can read about humility, we can pray about being humble, but at the end of the day, you have to be committed to be humble. Humility is our greatest friend. Humility increases our hunger for God's word. Why? It gets the spotlight off ourselves. We finally find this place where we realize what we've been missing. Humility opens our hearts to the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Humility leads us to greater intimacy with God. God resists the pride of the proud. If we're prideful, he'll resist us. Why? Because it requires humility to come before him. Humility opens our hearts to the transforming power. It it welcomes grace into our lives. Humility, again, leads us to greater intimacy with God. But pride will distance you from the presence of God. Pride will cause us to adopt a a settle-for-religion type of mentality. Rather than a life-giving relationship, we'll just settle for religion. That's not God's plan for our life. Humility imparts the aroma of Christ to everyone we encounter. Developing the identity, the attitude, and the conduct of a humble servant like Jesus will not happen overnight. And if you want this to happen, let's lay hands on each other, let's pray, let's impart humility. You can't. It's a virtue. It's something that has to be developed in us. And you know the only way to do that is? It's like that onion. You've got to peel back a layer. You've got to expose the pride. You've got to bring humility into the situation. And then guess what? There's another layer. And it's a continual work. But you know yourselves well. Pride will rise up. If you don't continue to dethrone it yourself, your desires, your wants, your needs, what you want, even though it opposes what God wants, will continue to rise to the surface. But the Holy Spirit will help you. He will empower you. You don't have to live under the dominion of pride. Expose each layer of time. But if we expose our pride and humble ourselves daily, deliberately choosing our dependence on the Holy Spirit, The humility of Christ will grow in our hearts. It will transcend into our behaviors and our attitudes. Church, please, I beg you, humble yourselves. Trust the Lord. He loves you. He will not humiliate you. Once again, I'd like to thank you for listening to this message. It was an honor to be able to spend this time with you in God's Word. If you have any questions or would like to find out more about Holt Assembly of God, please go to our website at www.holtag.org and connect with us there. Until our next broadcast of Life in the Spirit, I hope that you have a great day as you serve the Lord Jesus with a grateful heart.